Welcome to the Film Illiterates Podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, ill-advised movie talk. As always, I am Joe Campbell, and joining me today, as always, are Alex Patton. Hello. And Nathan Stone. Uh, yeah, hey, what's up? So, Nate, uh, what, how, how's, how's it going? You sound uh, you sound kind of down. Is quarantine finally getting to you? I don't know. I'm trying hard. I'm trying hard. There's only so many podcasts and so many games of Sudoku I can handle, and then I'm... I don't know. I'm going to crack, guys. I, I got to get my mind off of something. Help me out here. Here, quick, I've quick. got something that'll keep you occupied for a while. Oh, yeah? What is that? Watch Naruto with all the arcs. I'm going to kill you, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the worst anime out there. What? Yes, I am definitely not a Naruto fan. I know we're going to get a lot of haters now on me for this. Well, movie. what's a few more? What's a few more, exactly? I haven't even watched Naruto, but okay. Damn. So, I mean, among other things, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've been watching movies while I've been uh, locked down in my house. Uh, Nate, you been watching movies? Yeah, I have, I've actually been watching movies, yes. How about you, Alex? Do you watch movies? That I, I know the answer to that is no, right? The answer is no, but for the script, yes. <laughs> Go off of script. You do what the script says. Well, because we like talking about movies and we like watching movies, mm -hmm. uh, today we're going to be talking about some of our favorite directors, uh, whether it's their the director's style, themes, or just because their movies are a shitload of fun to watch. Uh, we all have our favorite directors. Yes, even even Alex has his favorite directors. I know it's even, hard to even believe. I, even I do, yeah. Now, uh, just to be clear, uh, don't don't hold us to this list. This isn't any sort of like definitive, at least from on my part, any definitive, well thought out list. And these are uh, we're going to be listing off each one of us five directors that we just really like a hell of a lot and we're going to be going over why. Uh, so consider this our bite-sized version of a spotlight episode as we look at some of our personal favorite directors. Uh, but before we get into any of that, let's talk about what we've watched on our own recently. I say let's start off with Alex first so that we can oh, get his God. stuff out of the way. Yeah, we can get it out of the way. Okay. So obviously, you know, nothing new over here. I haven't really watched anything. Uh, I'm furloughed now, so I actually have time to watch stuff. Regardless, I haven't been. Okay. Well, I've been playing a lot of uh, Call of Duty, though. Okay. Well, that's not too bad. I mean, there's a story behind there, and it's pretty cinematic with some of the gameplays. I mean, uh, the single player is, sure, yeah. I've just been playing They a little, like, uh, last month or a couple months ago, they released their new um, Battle Royale Warzone. Oh, nice. So I've been playing that a little bit with, with some of my friends then you know because of playing that i've been getting back into playing the multiplayer just to kind of level up guns and just do something like that destiny this season has been pretty dry and really grindy there is currently an event going on which is just more grind so i've just kind of been doing other stuff like i said just mostly playing cod just to kind of take a break from destiny now here's a question with the uh, call of duty is it like mm -hmm. just one set arena or is it different arenas for this oh they have a bunch of different maps okay in in multiplayer specifically they have a bunch of different maps a bunch of different game modes everything from just regular uh, team deathmatch to you know control points to kill confirmed all this different stuff for warzone the battle royale it's just currently the one map it's of course massive so i i hope they come out with a new map for Warzone, or maybe just update the current one, kind of like Fortnite has done. But we'll see, kind of how they, uh, what direction they take with it. Now, is this the new Call of Duty, Alex? The current one, yes, yes, yes. Okay, gotcha. Because I have played Call of Duty, but not in uh, several years. So I'm sure whichever ones I've played are several generations removed from this current one. 
Oh yeah, especially with their release schedule where they release a new one every year because they have three companies making COD games. Oh geez. Yeah, it's it's been keeping up pretty steadily. Yeah, I want to say Modern Warfare. I think the first Modern Warfare. I think I think that's the last one I remember playing. Okay, well, I mean, we're coming back around to where that's now remastered. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for music things, though, uh, I've been listening to a lot of... There's a new a- um, album called Skin Out. It's by a couple rappers, Kill Bill and Rav. I've listened to Kill Bill. I think it was a mixtape he did with Rav maybe a year or two ago, something like that. And it didn't really wow me, but for whatever reason, this one just really hit the right spot. It's a lot. It's really relaxed, pretty jazzy, a bit a bit abstract, but it's kind of just what I'm really looking for right now. You know, just something real relaxed, kind of cruise through the day, cruise through the evenings. It's pretty mellow the whole way through. So if you're not, it's not really hyped like you'd get with other stuff. Um, so it's real nice for kind of just you know chilling inside yeah no I'm, I'm looking at a lot of their um discography uh album art it's uh mm-hmm. i kind of like it it's actually the colors that they use are very retro and bold and it looks mm-hmm. like it appeals to a lot of just that gamer community because i see a lot of uh um kind of like a 8-bit atari kind of art throughout there as well so uh, well like kill bill even has an older uh mixtape called ramona mm-hmm. from you know scott pilgrim mm-hmm. so yeah it, it's definitely kind of catering a bit to that sort of that sort of audience yeah yeah okay nice but that's uh yeah that's what i've been into well so uh alex next week hopefully or next time we do a podcast i'll have to have some movies that you would have watched by now <laughs> i yeah i think I, I might get into some we'll see <laughs> okay okay we just wanted you to kind of get the reputation of you being just a, a lazy gamer <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right. Okay. So I guess on to me. Um, so I've been kind of decided to go on a film noir trek and kind of like go back and seeing some of the classic film noirs that exist out there. One, I'm actually, actually, these are two films I've not seen. And I kind of feel bad that I have not seen them, but they're both uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall film noir movies. The first one I'll talk about is To Have and Have Not. In Vinci, France, fishing boat captain Harry, played by Humphrey Bogart, avoids getting involved in politics, refusing to smuggle French resistance fighters into Martinique. But when a resistance client is shot before he can pay, Harry agrees to help smuggle two fighters to the island. Harry is further swayed by Slim, who's played by the young and beautiful Lauren Bacall. He is forced to fight for the resistance. So this is an interesting movie. There's a lot of history behind it. And if anyone's familiar with this movie, it was Lauren Bacall's like debut role. And she was only 19 in this. And when you watch her performance, it, you're kind of shocked because she acts a lot more mature than she actually is. And I think it just kind of blew everyone away because it's like, oh, my gosh, this 19 year old is putting on some hot moves and all that. So I don't know. I, I hate to bash Casablanca, one of the best movies out there, but this kind of is better than Casablanca, in my opinion. Not a difficult feat to achieve, in my opinion. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people who hold that movie, Casablanca, to high esteem. Like, that's like the pinnacle of like the best storytelling but i don't know this one i'm I'm watching it and i'm comparing the two and it's i don't know they're different but this one actually just hits a lot of the right notes and of course this is obviously a couple years after casablanca came out they were able to you know use the formula very well but i think it's the on-screen chemistry between lauren and humphrey in this and funny enough actually they were both romantically involved while on set and it's kind of weird because he's like 20 years her senior 
So ah, one of the one of those on-screen relationships. One of those, yes, and you can clearly see, yeah, that they really want each other. But it's a good story as well. I think the acting. It's directed by Howard Hawks, who's you know one of the best uh, film noir as well as western filmmakers back in the day. And I don't know. This is just a good example of the craft. And I don't know if anyone's not seen it. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I I have. I can't say that's an area of cinema that I've really gotten into. Actually, Humphrey Bogart in general, I haven't really dug very deep into his filmography so i'll have to do a deep dive one of these days he is definitely an interesting actor to watch just because he's not doing anything special but he just commands a lot on the screen and it's just kind of cool to watch um the next film i saw of that was another film that they both were in called the big sleep when private investigator Philip Moreau is hired by the General Sternwood to help resolve a gambling debts of his wild younger daughter, Carmen, Sternwood's older daughter, Vivian, played by Lauren Bacall, provides assistance when she implies that the situation is more complex and also involves casino owner, played by John Wrigley, and a recent disappeared family friend. So... This is another film noir mystery romance film that's kind of like up there on the list for a lot of film nerds like myself to watch. And compared to the first one, this one's, it's okay. I think there's a lot better stuff in To Have and To Have Not that I liked. This one, it just it's just a better film noir mystery thriller in general. Like, you know, you have Humphrey Bogart who's on this case. He's trying to solve it. He's making phone calls going in and going out everywhere. And it's a good scenes, but... I don't know. It didn't like wow me as big as like to have and have not did. It's I think if anything, it's just impressive how I think at this point, Humphrey Bogart was really kind of cementing himself as like, this is the actor that all guys want to be and all girls want to date. Doesn't he often play characters like that, though? Oh, yeah, for sure. But it's like not that many girls would like be swooned over him. But it's like every <laughs> single woman he's coming across in this movie are just like swooned over him. And I was like, geez, OK, you might as well just do every single woman in the town. Why don't you? <laughs> I mean, just the Bogue, man. He's got that swagger. Yo. Yeah, that bogey. You know, everybody wanted to be the bogey. <laughs> Uh, the last one I will briefly talk about is Shutter Island, um, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo and directed by the world-famous Martin Scorsese. An impulsive escape of a brilliant murderess brings U.S. Marshal Teddy Daniels and his new partner to Ashcliff Hospital, a fortress-like insane asylum located on the remote, windswept island of Shutter Island. But as the investigation deepens, Teddy realizes he will have to confront his own dark fears if he hopes to make it off the island alive. So have you guys seen this movie? This was back in 2010. Yeah, I have, yeah, and I haven't seen it since it, it came out. Same. Yeah, I saw it actually in theaters. Yeah, I don't know what your guys' takeaway from that movie was, but I think it was pretty predictable. And I think people kind of guessed what the, you know, the conclusion or the finale of the movie was going to be, right? You see, I remember enjoying it uh, quite a bit, but I also remember not being bothered by the fact that it's predictable i'm not the sort of person where if a movie is if, if i see where it's going that, that doesn't necessarily ruin the ride for me as long as the ride is really good and that that, that seems to me to be one of those kinds of movies yeah actually i was going to comment on that like for me the story is very predictable on what's going to happen but the experience and the journey that Scorsese just takes you on is very visually engaging. You're kind of like really swept away and it it's just kind of shows like Scorsese is really good when he's like doing something as simple as like a murder mystery like this. It's kind of just really cool to watch. Like he's just putting a lot of stuff in here. And obviously the guy who wrote this, um, it's based off of his novel as well. 
but it's just it kind of messes with you after a while like you kind of wonder okay is he not right in the head but then his kind of his own perception of reality is something that you buy into as well and i don't know i kind of like rewatching it again i'm like man this is a pretty well-crafted movie yeah i remember to me i didn't catch on to where it was going so the ending was still a bit of a surprise to me um uh, but even then i it, if kind of like joe was saying if i can see where the story's going i'm i can overlook that so long as the um journey there is interesting and in interesting enough um but yeah i remember seeing it enjoying it and then later looking at reviews and pe- seeing people didn't like it and just wondering why it's like i thought it was good yeah, it's kind of interesting. How people like are split on like people want to be engaged by the story all the way through. And then there's some who like, you know, they're smarter and they know what's coming, but they're kind of just in for the ride and they just want to see how it's done. And and, and these movies exist out there. And I, I like these kinds of movies um, where it's just like it's just a, a visual gem to watch. And there's some really good performances in here. I think uh, Sir Ben Keasley, he plays like the, um, I guess, the owner of the island and his performance it's really good. It's like, you know, Ben Keasley's not in a lot of stuff, but when he's in something with Scorsese, it's really good. Like he was good in Hugo as well. And then DiCaprio is just, you put him in anything with Scorsese and and he's good. Yeah. Uh, Aside from that, that's pretty much it. So I've been in the mood for kind of a rip roaring fun adventure movies, swashbuckling adventures. Oh yeah. I can see where this is going. That's good. (laughs) I I think I think just 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 being stuck indoors for so long. I I just want some some fun movie to watch. So I checked out for the first time. I had never seen this before. Captain Blood from 1935. Oh my gosh! You haven't seen Captain Blood? Dang. I hadn't until now, and awesome. I was specifically looking for swashbuckling pirate movies that I hadn't seen before, and this one was at the top of most people's lists. So from 1935, starring Errol Flynn, uh, after being wrongly convicted as a traitor, Peter Blood, an English physician, is sent to exile in the British colonies of the Caribbean, where he becomes a pirate. This movie is a barrel of fun. It's 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 fantastic. Uh, swashbuckling adventure film is pretty much exactly what the doctor ordered in my case. I was surprised by how much setup there was before he becomes a pirate. The entire first half of the movie is about how he becomes a prisoner and then a slave and then working his way trying to escape and then finally the second half of the movie is about him as a pirate and it's it's not so much him going on pirate adventures as following his specific story and how he doesn't necessarily want to be a pirate but he wants to get back in society at large but he's also comfortable with where he is yeah funny thing about this um joe did you ever see uh errol flynn's uh, adventures of robin hood Oh, I love that movie. It's fantastic. And I think you kind of probably noticed uh, pretty much the same cast is in this movie as well. You same have, director, too. Yeah, actually, same director, same composer as well. So if the music sounds really good, it's the exact same composer. So is this is just the elements of just the great like adventure, swashbuckling hero story. So I would absolutely 100% recommend Captain Blood. Also, I went ahead and I'm surprised to find that I didn't already own the Indiana Jones movie. So I went ahead and, and ordered the Blu-rays. Wait, of those. what? You have I know, not owned I know. it? That's like sacrilegious, Joe. I, I don't know, Alex. We should punish him for that. Cause that's... I, mean, I think even I've got, got him on VHS. <laughs> yeah, at least that VHS version or bad DVD version, Joe. Of I'm... course you would have VHS, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I would. You, Joe, you would be the one who has VHSs. 
for those who don't know, I'm a really big physical media guy and I have a I, I, I collect Blu-rays. And so I, I think one of the reasons, though, is, is that these have been available on Netflix for the longest time. And I just haven't gotten around to rewatching them. And I finally I ordered the Blu-rays set. It comes with an extra bonus disc with a bunch of behind the scenes making of stuff. So I'm slowly working my way through the Indiana Jones movies, which I haven't seen some of these for, gosh, probably 10 plus years in some cases. Yeah. Uh, so I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark most recently, which perfect movie. Um, there's not really a whole lot to say about it that hasn't been said already. This time I noticed that Indy as an action hero is interesting because if you compare him to someone like John McClane from Die Hard, John McClane tries to get creative and he thinks on his feet and he says, all right, you know, strap some C4 to a chair and throw it down an elevator shaft and see what happens. Mm-hmm. He's constantly trying to reinvent his plans as they they fail. Indy is more of ride or die. He he he's, he has plan A. He sticks to plan A, and if plan A doesn't work, he'll die. So plan A has to work. So yeah, and I think of specifically, for instance, in that opening famous opening scene in the temple when he's trying mm-hmm. to escape. Yep. There's one bit where the the door is closing down, and he's hanging on to the edge of this little cliff. In any other movie, he would have either made that jump. A lot easier or some other deus ex machina would have saved him but for indy it's just more of no 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 no. i'm in this impossible situation but i've got to make it work anyways so. right and if anything it's kind of like you do know there's only one way out of this temple and it's through the entrance if he can't get through that he's kind of he's stuck there so yeah yeah exactly there isn't a lot of creativity to his plans it's just more of what is the quickest line between points a and b and I'm just gonna run for it. It just just run run and punch my way through it because damn it, there's no other way. Well, especially you know when he's in a is it Cairo, right? When he he's like at that like a standoff with the bladesman, and he's just like, okay, I gotta find Miriam. Uh, this guy's in the way. Shoot him dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is funny that that was was improvised on 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 set because of, out of necessity, but it totally fits his character. And it's just funny because I think Harrison Ford brings a lot to that character, as opposed to like you know Spielberg like telling him how to direct. It's like Harrison Ford's going to do his own thing. And he, I remember that scene in particular, Joe, because he had dysentery, and he's like, "Why don't I just shoot the guy?" And he's like, "Yeah." That works. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic how these 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 movies are put together, impeccably made. Uh, Steven Spielberg knows how to shoot the hell out of these movies. And then I also got around to watching Temple of Doom. Now, mm-hmm. I I hadn't seen Temple of Doom. I think I've seen it once or twice. The last time I saw it was in college, and I really remember thinking this movie is kind of a stinker. And uh, Nick Van Leeshout and I get into big arguments about this because he <laughs> loved Temple of Doom. Oh, I can see I do you as both. Well. I mean, I, I kind of have, I'm half and half with it just because I remember seeing it as a kid and thinking it was funny. But then as you get older, you you get a little cringe out of like some of the scenes, but it's still like cringy fun. For, for me this time, it's it's still impeccably made. It's I would say it's just as well made as Raiders as, as far as Steven Spielberg's filmmaking sensibilities. He shoots the hell out of the movie. The action scenes are exciting. They're fun, top notch. Everything from trying to escape the the the, the temple, every, the whole third act is phenomenal. I mean, the whole the whole uh, uh, was it the the mining cart chase is fantastic. fantastic. That is a lot of fun too. And so it's like once that kind of like picks up again, and we're on that kind of a trail where it's like a chase scene, it, it becomes fun. There is yeah. there's a lot to this movie that is just perfect. My my problem is that for the next half hour, the movie is just nothing but 
dour and dread and darkness and yeah oh now now we're getting kids are being tortured and oh yeah. now indy is brainwashed and now yeah. he's beating the crap out of short round and it's just it's just like the movie kind of stops being fun and i'm just waiting for him to snap out of it and so, so that we can get back to the adventure and it just yeah. kind of yeah and it's, it's it's all about demonic possession and the whole thing just has this kind of oppressive stifling tone for about half an hour that really puts a damper on the movie for me that aside if that was my only problem with the movie i could i, I would still think it's, oh, it's a great movie it's got a, a little kind of a slug of a chunk in there but the, the movie itself is great but i mean then you got willie who's one of the the worst female characters of all time in my opinion and 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 indy is just pissed off at her the whole movie i mean <laughs> indiana jones isn't necessarily a quote-unquote deep character but he's a character that we understand in in uh raiders of the lost ark his connection to marion made him more of a character for us to care about yeah uh it, it gave him something to care about and in this one he's just kind of he seems annoyed that he's he's stuck with with willie the whole movie yeah it becomes like a gimmick it's like it's just like you know let's put indiana jones with like the whiniest the loudest the most obnoxious woman he could ever come across and let's see how he reacts and it becomes that and that's where a lot of the antics come from yeah so so i i, I get why some people love this movie it's just not my flavor of Indiana Jones. Well, there's two more that you need to watch. Or if you're some purist, there's only one more you have to watch in the series. So. <laughs> I'm looking forward to watching these last two. Um, uh, last Crusade, I've probably seen second most next to Raiders. Uh, I remember loving that one. Uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I'm, inter I'm interested to revisit because I've only ever, I think I've only ever seen it once. And that was in theaters. And that was mm -hmm. before... It had the reputation that it does now of being the the absolute worst Indiana Jones movie, but I remember enjoying it as a kid in theaters. So we'll we'll see we'll see how it holds up for me now. I know my opinion is still the opinion of uh, the creators from South Park when they did their parody of that. So oh, oh yeah, <laughs> that's my still my opinion about that movie. <laughs> well, I'll talk about it. I'm sure on the uh, uh, the next podcast when I come around to it. And with that, let us move on to our main topic, which is some of our favorite directors. One of the best things that a film director today can do for an actor is you should be sitting right by the camera. Not be watching it on a monitor, not be watching it on a TV set, sitting in a chair, oftentimes in a whole other room. Right. If you watch the acting right next to the camera, right in front of the actors, it's as if they are acting only for you. So today we're going to be talking about some of our favorite directors. Each one of us is going to highlight five directors that we greatly admire. Maybe talk a little bit about why they love that director, uh, a couple of movies, uh, just whatever we want to talk about. It'll, yeah. it'll, it'll be fun. It's laid back. So, Alex do, you want, Alex, do you want to go ahead and kick us off? Uh, who is one of your favorite directors? Sure. Uh, to start off, we'll go with uh, David Fincher. The Fincher. The Fincher. Did he do Pulp Fiction? Joe, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't encourage his ignorance. <laughs> so, we'll skip over Joe here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, David Fincher is... I've seen most of his movies. I think I've only haven't caught uh, Alien Three. I don't know if I can really you know should be able to skip that one, but uh, Panic Room and then Gone Girl. For the longest time, though, Seven was one of my favorite movies. Um, I mean, still is for, uh, absolutely Zodiac is insanely good. Um, but 
I, I one of the things I kind of like about David Fincher is it's it's everything he seems to shoot and direct and everything. It's all very calculated. It's just everything happens in a specific order in a specific way. I mean, that kind of goes for Seven for Social Network. Fight Club's a little bit of a loose cannon just because that fits the story. But even then, you know, it kind of fits that way. And Zodiac, while it's a slow burn, it's very kind of, it's on its set direct path. Yeah, it's almost like Fincher is actually kind of like stapled like his style with his name. Like anyone can like pick out a David Fincher movie from anywhere. Um even stuff that he, he just like produces, it still has his like his touch on it, and it's 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 his brand. I was gonna ask is like, is there a favorite movie of all of his filmography that you kind of like put? Seven is probably my favorite out of out of his. That um, it, it was one of the first ones of his that I'd seen. I think it was like that and Fight Club, and then later I got into Zodiac, um, you know Benjamin Button, Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, I've seen the game, which which I'd say out of all the out of all the movies of his I've seen was uh, my least favorite. It's still it's still really good, but just doesn't live up to my the other ones that I mentioned in my opinion. He he definitely likes to dabble into just that twisted dark human side of nature of just humanity, and uh, I think the game, even though it's not really good, it's a good follow up with Seven, especially as he kind of like was trying to get out of the, his. Alien 3, you know, stain on his record. And he's like, oh, he came out with 7 and then came out with the game. And then shortly after that, Fight Club. So he is definitely did a good job with, like, progressing from there. Absolutely, yeah. And I I can think, I like, that's one of, that's one of the things I like about his movies is just the focus on people. And mm-hmm. with, I guess, the exception of, you know, uh, Benjamin Button kind of seeing the darker side of everything. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. guess maybe social, so, so, I mean, social network sort of in a way, not mm-hmm. doesn't really follow the same path as a lot of his other stuff, as a lot of his other movies, but you do got to see a little bit more of the um, kind of, in a way, darker side, like I mentioned, of uh, Jesse, uh, yeah, well, Jesse Eisenberg. Mm-hmm. Um, just in, it's just in a different setting mm-hmm. than everything else he's done. I know that Panic Room really isn't in your wheelhouse of genre, Alex, but I would I would still recommend checking it out if you're a big fan of Fincher. Uh, it's my personal favorite, but that's just mm-hmm. I, I I like kind of the, the the tense thriller aspect to that one more than his other ones. But it's it really is it it, it does still stick with that impeccably, very mechanically thought out and made movie. This one shot in particular, which is just. It, it, fantastic and, and it's 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 astounding what he does to accomplish a shot using cg kind of invisibly where you wouldn't think to use cg i, yeah. I do know what you're yeah. talking about and what i kind of like about that is how he just pulls all these elements and it's a contained space movie it's a contained space thriller and it's all just shot in one setting and it still keeps you gripped all the way through i mean like there's no reason i haven't really seen panic room yet just haven't gotten around to it um you know the story is sounds interesting i like the idea of having it all in you know in one contained space i i'm i'm pretty interested in stories that can really work well within one specific location so that's that really is kind of interesting um you know interesting to me um but yeah just like i said just haven't gotten around to it. it's just one of the his movies that and gone girl awesome nate all right so i'm going to start off with uh one of my Directors who I think kind of really got me into just 
looking at films and studying them a bit more was uh, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, so I think like anyone who's like understands with Chris Nolan, he's this guy who, you know, really add this new layer to, you know, the Batman, you know, franchise with the Dark Knight trilogy, kind of bringing it into a much more modern urban setting. Um, and a lot of people kind of always say, oh, it's the Dark Knight director. But for me, I, I actually remember his very first debut film following where he just like shot that on a budget on a weekend with like a, a millimeter camera. But even then, it's like you see all these elements of him just, you know, really utilizing dialogue, visuals, setting. And, and I don't know, there's something about like how he shoots something, how he decides to, when he latches onto a concept and goes with it, like some of my favorites of his are Memento. I mean, The Dark Knight's a big one. I really like The Prestige as well. The Ooh, Prestige yeah. is a very, very underrated Nolan film. And I think a lot of people are gaining a lot more of appreciation for that. Oh yeah, I love The Prestige. So it just kind of shows he's very crafty. He's very intricate. He's very detailed. And there's a lot of Easter eggs you have to kind of like pay attention to his work. I mean, like Inception is probably the one that everyone looks back on and tries to catch all the little nuances, the little details. But, you know, it's also something that's kind of fun. I think he's kind of Hitchcockian with his style as well, where you see all these little trademarks and the same people he likes to work with and everyone's wearing a business suit as they walk around. So he's definitely really... He definitely knows what he's like. And uh, I don't know. I think he's uh, he's one of those directors I will watch and get a fun ride out of it. Yeah, I, I think the only movie of his that I haven't seen yet is Following. But he is a, a very calculated, great, great director, great choice. Yeah. All right, Joe, what about you? Well, the one I'm going to start off with is another calculated director. I'm going to start off with Stanley Kubrick. Oh. Talk about calculated. Yeah. So Kubrick is interesting because he's probably the director that I got into first when I first got into directors, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, when, it, when I really started noticing, uh, oh, this this director did multiple movies. I want to look up all of his movies. And yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I saw 2001 Space Odyssey from a young age on a VHS my parents had taped off of TV. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. I kind of feel like you no, need I, to see it in its purest form. But. Hey, 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 it introduced me to That's 2001 true. Space Odyssey. It got me interested in the movie. I, I bought the DVD uh, later on. So it's, 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 as far as I'm concerned, that, that VHS, in a way, kind of kickstarted my appreciation of, of film. Yeah, let's uh, say, hey, we, we wouldn't be here if that, uh, if that didn't happen. That's true. If, if, my, if my dad didn't show me 2001 Space Odyssey mm -hmm. against my mom's wishes. <laughs> Um, but it, what's interesting about Kubrick, I mean, other than being a very calculated, very perfect, perfectionist of a director, is that his movies are varied in the the genres that he tackles. He's 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 done horror, he's done war, he's done comedy, he's done uh, comedy a couple of times, he's done uh, period pieces, but in all of them, his style is always distinct. Like you you know when you're watching a Kubrick movie. Even if he's making something goofy like Dr. Strangelove or a romance like Eyes Wide Shut, something like that. So, I mean, obviously my, my pick is going to be 2001 Space Odyssey. That's the one I grew up with. It's the one that I've seen the most and it's the one I, I can practically recite. Uh, so that is my, my favorite Kubrick. And it's the one that I'll, will always have a special place in my heart. But as far as the rest of his filmography, he's just... He, 
no, no matter if I like the movies, like I'm not a fan of Eyes Wide Shut. I'm not even particularly a fan of A Clockwork Orange, but I like the way they're made. So, yeah. I mean, if anything, there's structure to his films. And even as controversial as the film may be, you, you kind of watch it. He uses a lot of like wide, deep spaces in a lot of his films. And he definitely keeps his character centered uh, as much as he can. And I don't know, there's something hypnotic about it. I, I, I like to use the word hypnotic about Kubrick because there's something that kind of draws you into his work. And as comfortable as it may be, it uh, you kind of find it a little gripping. You want to watch it all the way to the end, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So, Alex? So next we got, I'd say I'd go with uh, Edgar Wright here. He's actually, I think, the director on this on my list that I've seen like all of his major movies. But Edgar Wright is just, he's so entertaining like all of his movies are just a blast to watch i mean you got the cornetto trilogy Shaun of the dead hot fuzz my personal favorite of the three and then world's end then scott pilgrim and then of course baby driver but yeah like edgar wright's just his blend of action and just comedy is impeccable um just the timing and everything is just flows perfectly together i mean hot fuzz is like i say I would say Hot Fuzz is the best of the Cornetto trilogy. That's where he really like hit his stride. You know, he had that set, he had the setup with Shot of the Dead, then just took it full force with uh, Hot Fuzz. Just everything hits perfectly. Um, World's End was, no, I didn't like it as much as the first two in the Cornetto. Still good, still enjoyable for sure. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World though, I think today, still to the, to this day, that is one of the most entertaining movies I've ever seen if not the most entertaining like i've seen it i went to see it twice in theater just because i loved it so much i mean you you start with like the really great source material from the graphic novels um and then you just kick it up a few more notches with the incredible editing and like visual effects and everything like that uh it's just absolutely fantastic um and and with scott pilgrim the music plays a massive part you know they're all in a band battle of the bands that's the whole thing uh, that is one of the reasons of course why i like the movies just because of the really heavy incorporation of music into it um and just how how it works so well into you know what's going on it's not like just some you know popular song kind of tacked on and you know into the scene yeah there's the really heavy incorporation of music is fantastic yeah edgar wright is a director who could have easily made my my list as well but uh i decided to when i saw he was like when i saw he was on your list i decided i'll, I'll let alex take that one i got i got plenty of others i, I could throw in there i'd love to talk about too mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you yeah i've only i've only got a few so i got this one though <laughs> all right i guess the next one i'm going to actually talk about is charlie chaplin so when it comes to the master of silent film comedy, this guy is like up there with um, Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton. Although more so, I think Charlie Chaplin, he's kind of, he transcends those guys just because of his character of the tramp. And even just afterwards, like he did a few films after his tramp franchise. Uh, I think Modern Times was the last one that he reprised the role. And then after that, we did The Great Dictator. And then following that, uh, just a lot of like one-off movies like Limelight, uh, Monsieur Velo. But there's something about his style where it's simple, but it's very rich in detail. He uses the mise-en-scene very well as his like arena for his physical comedy, as well as just just as set pieces um i mean a 
a bunch of his films I really liked are his silent film era ones, like kind of like the short films he did when he was the tramp, but also his feature length films like Gold Rush, uh, The Kid, City Lights. And one thing I like about his style is just how, I guess if you can call like a dancer of comedy, he just loves to just play with the scene and make anything just enduring like i think one of the scenes that comes to my mind is the dance with the globe scene from the great dictator where he has his uh, character who's kind of like a a a pseudo character off of adolf hitler who has this humongous uh globe of the world and he's just like bouncing it up in the air and there's like a little kind of a dance going on and it's kind of silly and whimsical and at the very end it pops and it's it just kind of shows he's just he's that great at what he does to make even something like that um, just enduring and it sticks with you. Yeah, Chaplin is one that I I grew up with, so I'll always have a soft spot in my in my heart for his movies. Uh, early master of film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I'm going to talk about Richard Franklin, who I'm pretty sure I've talked about a few times on this podcast before. Yeah, you have talked about wanting to do a video about him or yes i would love to do a video on on richard franklin i think he's a basically richard franklin got his start as being a huge fan of hitchcock and he wanted to make movies like like alfred hitchcock so one of his one of his first movies is a movie called patrick which is, is an australian filmmaker so it's this kind of australian psychological thriller but patrick has has a lot of supernatural elements about it it's about a, a guy in a coma who may or may not have mind powers but the movie the way he shoots the movie it is kind of campy but he shoots it like a Hitchcock movie. And then and then he went on to do stuff like Road Games, which is basically Rear Window on the Open Road. He did Link, which is about a, a killer chimpanzee. So a lot of his movies kind of have this pulpy element to him. Uh he also he also did Psycho 2, actually. He 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 was the one who made the sequel to Psycho and I'm telling you guys, it's a lot better than it has any right to be. <laughs> you I did might mention have to that. Take your word on that one, but okay. But Richard Franklin, he makes thrillers. That is what he he has kind of perfected. I think he's the closest thing we'll ever see to what kind of a career Hitchcock would have had if he had continued making movies. My personal favorite of his is Cloak and Dagger uh, from the 1980s, which is basically the man who knew too much, but with a kid. And the MacGuffin is a a, a game cartridge that has government secrets on it. Mm-hmm. It really is a, a wrong man movie. And he pull, and he brings that sort of element to even stuff like uh, this blockbuster sequel called FX2 about a special effects guy who gets caught up in another tale of espionage. So I, I think if Richard Franklin is a director that more people need to really dive deep into his filmography because I'm sure that quite a few people out there have seen one or two of his movies not even realizing they were done by the same guy. And I think he deserves a little bit more of a deep dive from the film community in general. Well, you heard it from Joe himself. You know, go out there and rent Cloak and Dagger. You know, put Cloak and Dagger on and watch a kid get chased by secret agents. Watch a kid uh, shoot a guy because his uh, imaginary friend told him to. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that great how, like, there's a fine line that violence dabbles in these kid movies and... I don't know. Trust me, I, I, if if you're out there listening and you haven't seen it yet, just check out Psycho Two. Give it, just just give it a shot. You're in quarantine right now. You can rent it online easily enough. I'm I'm not asking you to like it. I'm just saying watch it because I think you'll be surprised at how thoughtful and well done it actually is. What I do is I'm able to express myself in visual images in narrative cinema. That's what I do. 
there are certain tools you use, and those tools become part of a vocabulary. Tracking in or out, panning left and right, the use of a close-up as opposed to a medium shot. How do you use all these elements to make an emotional and psychological point to an audience? To tell the story. All righty, Alex, uh, what's, your, what's your number three? All right, so next I got Nicholas Winding Refn. Uh, of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. So, I mean, we've got the video of our review of Only God Forgives on Film Literates. I, dude, Refn, man, like people can complain like his movies are more like style or yeah, style over substance. And I can understand that. I can understand where they're coming from and that maybe, you know, Maybe I can understand why they don't like it. But damn, man, style's so good, though. Like, Only God Forgives is like, that is such a good-looking movie. And while the story is, you know, a bit kind of up in the air, sure, um, it's it's just so fascinating still. Um, I mean, Valhalla Rising is one of those where I can definitely see where it's, yeah, a lot more style over their substance, for sure. But again... The movie's gorgeous to look at. Like, I think I mentioned in my review on uh, Letterbox, like, every, almost like every frame could be the cover of some like atmospheric black metal album, and I would probably love it. It's just, it's an amazingly gorgeous movie. Um, I mean, that's of course helped by the setting, the story. Again, it's out there. It's not easily understandable, and I think that that's kind of one of the things what that I like about his movies is. The story is a bit hard to follow. Can be can be hard to follow and kind of goes all over the place and maybe not doesn't really end um, very conclusively. But that to me is kind of one of the things that really draws me in. It's just getting more into it and trying to understand it more on like repeated viewings and just really trying to get at what the heart of the movie's at. Because style over substance, whatever, it's definitely still got a heart in there. I mean, one thing I kind of always think about when I think of his movies is like, it's it's almost like entering a fever dream. Like the colors just like, they're very unsettling and yet they're so rich. Um, and I think he's, he's mentioned that because he is colorblind, he doesn't see colors as normal people do. So I guess when he's working with his set designers, they pick specific colors intentionally so that he knows what he's shooting, but it still creates that mood that Tony's trying to go for. And that's why I think it's like a lot of his stuff has a defining look. It's kind of, it, you're right. It's, it's definitely interesting to watch, but it's also kind of unnerving as well. It just hits a weird, like unsettling nerve, but you can't look oh, away. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, that goes for Only God Forgives. That goes for Bronson, Valhalla Rising, a bit of Drive as well. I mean, that was, you know, Drive was, of course, the big one that really, you know, brought him kind of to the center stage. And, you know, the incredibly quiet, drawn out parts kind of subverted by the bits of violence. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, before he kind of really got big, he did a series of movies under Pusher. Um, so I haven't seen those. Fear X. I've seen Bronson. Yeah, Bronson was, I think, I think after I saw Drive, I think Bronson was one of the first ones I saw after that. Um, and, jeez, Tom Hardy's an absolute powerhouse in that movie. He's he's absolutely what drives it. I still have yet to see Neon Demon. That's one I've put on the back burner. But from what little I have seen, like trailers and whatnot, you know, it's got the 
it's got all the usual trappings of of a reference film. It's you know, it's incredible. The color is incredibly vivid. The style is all there. It's got a weird kind of story that's a little bit out there, you know. But that's I think that's what really kind of the thing that draws me in. Are you thinking about checking out his series, uh, Too Old to Die Young? Uh, looks like it's uh, came out last year, actually. Yeah, I I had seen that as well. Um, definitely something that I want to check out, just because again, it's rough and like kind of with all these all these directors, these are all guys that you know if they make something, we're interested, we're on board for it already. So yeah, absolutely. All righty, uh, Nate, what's your number three? Uh, let's see, number three. I guess I'm gonna go with Alfonso Coron. This is a guy who, in the past few years, I've kind of looked a lot more into his stuff. And I don't know, his stuff, I kind of find really admirable. So, you know, this is a guy who originated from Mexico. He's done a couple of, like, American films. But I think some of the stuff that I really enjoy from his, like, you know, are the ones that, like, made him into a a big, you know, powerhouse director. Like, he's really kind of seen as, like, almost like the main Mexican auteur filmmaker. Uh, He's done things like Itumama Tambien. He's done Gravity, which I think a lot of people remember him for. Uh, Children of Men. Uh, Probably the best Harry Potter movie in the whole franchise, which is The Prisoner of Azkaban. (laughs) And I stick by that fervently. As well as, like, his recent movie, uh, Roma. There's something about his style where he just like shoots everything in the long take style where it just there's something about how it's paced, how it's timed, how what he covers in the scenes, making it just so visually engaging as well, where it's telling a story even while the camera is like still following this one character or a couple of characters. I think the best scene to reference whenever you think about his movies is the finale scene of Children of Men when they're basically running through a war zone and Clive Owen is getting this woman to safety when she gets taken into a, a building that's being literally shot down. But it's all done like in a 13-minute take. And obviously there's some cuts there, but the whole seamless one take in that is kind of like a, a big trademark of his that I think is kind of impressive to watch. And he, you can see he has that in every film he does. Even like uh, other films that he did before this became a trademark style of his, it's kind of there. <laughs> All right, uh, my number three, I'm going to go with Andre Tarkovsky. Much like how Stanley Kubrick is one of the directors that kind of got me into exploring filmmakers and their entire filmography, Tarkovsky is another one of those. I discovered him in college. I think I watched pretty much all of his movies over the course of a break or a quarter. So, so not every Tarkovsky movie hits with me, but when he does, he really hits home. The one, the one I'm going to highlight is one that we've actually done a video on, which is Stalker which I rewatched recently and it still holds up. Even though his movies are long, contemplative, a lot of people will find them boring. If the subject matter interests me, I'm on board. I'm I'm on board with trying to figure them out, put together the pieces and figure out, you know, okay, what are these characters driving at? What do they need? Why are they on this journey in Stalker specifically or in Solaris? I love how it talks about obsession and relationships and clinging to the past those are all really interesting things so he's very much a an idea filmmaker which i know will be a turnoff for a lot of people and he's not a filmmaker for a lot of people but for those who like really interesting kind of thought piece movies he's kind of hard to beat yeah i i kind of remember we actually did review stalker together joe and i think one of the things i liked about stalker when we watched it was uh in that that scene when they're actually heading towards the zone it's literally a it was a six minute shot 
on the back of the head of these three men and nothing's happening except they're just on a cart on a railway track and that's it and it's like if you can get past that and just absorb the atmosphere of what you're going to get into it really sets the pace after that yeah his, his movies are very relaxing if nothing else if if, if, you, if you want a movie just that that will not stress you out just just throw out a tarkovsky movie <laughs> you can take a nap if nothing else yeah it's a test of patience you know if you can sit through that you can sit through anything <laughs> So that's my number three, Alex. All right, so we're gonna go with uh, Wes Anderson. Yay! Um, <laughs> it's just it, all of his movies are just fantastic. To get into it really more is everything's so detailed. You know, every frame is there's so much going on in the background. Everything. I mean, even talking about the way it's framed is just you can you you can look at a frame in a movie and you can see it and you'll know in an instant. If it's shot, if it's shot by Wes Anderson, it's just his movies have just a very specific look and style to them. Kind of going off of, you know, Refn in that, you know, his he's got a really heavy style, but you know, maybe not a lot of substance. Wes Anderson has that style, but then throws in these really, um, you know, touching and like heartwarming tales of or stories of family and quarrels between brothers, between different families and whatnot. It it's so great, man. Darjeeling Limited for the longest time was one was like my favorite movie. It's one of the ones that's not as critically claimed as, you know, some of his other stuff like Tenant Royal Tenant Bombs or Fantastic Mr. Fox and whatnot. But for that one, just like hit real home for me. But I was gonna yeah. actually ask, uh, do you, do you like a lot more of his earlier stuff or his later stuff? I go both ways. You go both ways, okay? Yeah, I mean, I I think the. First one that I saw of, of his was it might have been Rushmore or Royal Ten Bobs. So I got started in his I got you know in his earlier work, but you know fantastic you know going into his later stuff, Fantastic Mr. Fox is excellent. Um, Grand Budapest Hotel is fantastic. Moonrise Kingdom wasn't to me it wasn't as good as as all of his other stuff. Um, Isle of Dogs was also another one. I love that he went back to stop motion. Because Fantastic Mr. Fox was great, and then you know he took it with an, with another movie. So I loved that he returned to that. Even Life Aquatic, like people think that's like one of his worst movies. Like it's Wes Anderson doing a little bit of a weird, kind of going yeah, just going doing something a little bit weirder than what he normally gets into. But the comedy, the characters all hit off really well. And speaking of the characters. Just the way he's able to bring in such a huge cast. That's what I was going to say next is like, you're getting some huge A-list actors that he like always continuously works with in his movies. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just the way he's able to pull in so many different people from so many different backgrounds is, is incredible. And, and it just makes it all work. I mean, you know, he's got Bruce Willis in Moonrise Kingdom. He's got Edward Norton. He's got, and you know, Bill Murray and Telus Swinton and Jason Schwartzman you know, all these different people in just, you know, in right in, you know, Moonrise Kingdom. But in the same way as well with Edgar Wright, one of the main features of a Wes Anderson movie is the soundtrack. It's incorporated so well. It's just not, it's not like a song tacked in. It's just built into the framework and the lifeblood of the movie. Yeah. And that seems to be like a trademark of you. It's like if the soundtrack fits for a director in his style it's it's something you left sean to very quickly yeah absolutely yeah i i i would say out of 
and all the directors that we've talked about so far, Wes Anderson is probably the one who's the most stylistically distinctive. Yeah, we, yeah, I would say more than Ruffin for sure. Yeah, it's just everything's it's just all so cute looking. <laughs> <laughs> it's very cute and pretty, very like little miniature sets. Exactly. Yeah, 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 for sure. First thing I wanted to do when I was a kid was to be an architect. And then when I was in high school, I really wanted to be a writer. But I did always do little short plays uh, as a kid, and I made Super 8 movies. Yeah. So what I do now combines some of these things. Yeah. To make a good movie, you need a lot of ideas, and you need a, a lot of material. That's, I think, where it can start to be a bit of a painting, a bit of a um, theater production. That, but yeah, that, so that's, that's, my, that's mine. Nate, what you got? Uh, kind of like similar to you, like this is a, like you mentioned, you, uh, Wes Anderson's kind of like a director who uses his soundtrack very well to pace his movies. Uh, the next one I'm going to talk about kind of does the same thing for some of his movies, and that is Martin Scorsese. You know, this is the guy who's kind of, I think, in my opinion, perfected the the gangster movie. You look at everything he's done, like he's done Taxi Driver, he's done Goodfellas, he's done Mean Streets, as well as The Irishman that recently came out. I mean, Scorsese has a trademark style where he just is all about the bravado of the gangster. Um, And I think one of his movies that really just that shines the best in is Goodfellas. He does a way of like shooting it visually enriching and just there's a lot of energy and it's just really paced very well. But then you look at some of the actors he has in it and the performance they're pulling off. And one thing about Scorsese I like is he's admitted several times that he just wishes he could give the actors a full day just to do a scene perfectly because it's like he's never satisfied with just the first take or he's never satisfied with how they think they should play. He wants to explore all options. And I think for some actors, they love that about a director who not only just shoots something so well, but he just wants them to, you know, really bring their best to the table. And I don't know. I mean, like some performances I think that work really well, in my opinion, is Raging Bull. It's just like some of those scenes and some of those sequences are just done very well. And I think one thing about Scorsese's style that I like is he's kind of very documentarian with his style. Like he'll have like a voiceover going on while a sequence is unfolding. And... It just, it works. And I think this just plays a lot to his love for film as well. Like you look at all of his films, there's references dating back to like early um, Frank Capra films as well as Michael Powell films. He'll put references from Kurosawa in there. Um, I think one of, and he's, he has such a huge like range of films. Like he's done romances, he's done thrillers, he's done uh, mysteries, he's done religious movies as well. You know, Silence, I think, Joe, you and I, we reviewed Silence. It's one of those very underrated Scorsese films that is just really good. And you would not know it's him until, like, the end credits show up. Yeah, he's a director that I I love selections of his filmography, but he's not one that I've ever really thought of really diving into as, oh, I really love that director, but quite frequently I'll find a movie of his that I'll, I'll love, you know, like I loved uh, Silence, Silence, as, 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 as you mentioned, Hugo is another one that I absolutely yeah. love. Yeah. Um, I think with me as well, like actually when I first started getting into directors, he was one of those directors. I just had an interesting, I want to say love hate relationship because there's a lot of stuff he put in films, which I very much disagreed with and kind of was a little turned off by. But over time, I've had to actually revisit them and actually 
kind of he's one of those directors that challenges me as far as like what he puts on the screen what he is wrestling with as a thing because he's not trying to shove in my face this is how it should be but he's really trying to say you know this is what the character is going through this is the world they live in but I like how he's daring like that. He's one of those directors, like he kind of came from that school of directors like Spielberg, Lucas, De Palma, and even Coppola, who were all like these pioneers in this renaissance. And he's just that one who kind of went off the beaten path and just did his own thing. And I like how he takes challenges. He's one of those directors that is not afraid of trying something new, doing something that maybe not everyone else is doing, but it's what he really wants to do. And it really, I think that's where his best work comes in. And yeah, that's the reason why I think he's one of my favorite. Awesome. So me moving down, I'm going to go to one of the kind of stock answers anyone would give when they talk about their favorite directors. That is Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock could very well be the greatest director of all time. I know a lot of people would contest that. Hitchcock is the blueprint for every other filmmaker. Now, some literally, actually, he's known for actually doing director notebooks for every film he's done. Yeah, so I mean, I know I know a lot of people may may like certain filmmakers more 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 than others, or they might say like, well, Hitchcock he, he, he's great and all, but how about X, Y, and Z? I, I mean, yes, I, yes, I, I I get it, but but Hitchcock is just bare bones filmmaking one hundred one genius. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like he makes something like Psycho go from being a schlocky film to just a masterpiece. It, it could have been an easily just a a B rated uh, slasher film, and he makes it something even better than that. Well, yeah, they, they, and he did make a lot of similar type of movies, but they're similar type of movies that worked. And even within that, he he somehow found a way to take the same basic plot and make it new and interesting and different every time. He a lot of his a lot of his wrong man style movies are distinct for their own uh, special reasons. I know you, you and Nate have been talking about some of his earlier stuff recently, and I, I was thinking about you know the Thirty Nine Steps versus yeah. The Lady Vanishes versus the uh, the Man Who Knew Too Much. Yeah, all very similar types of plots, but I, I can name very distinct things about each one and why I love them individually. One of the things that I've I've taken from Hitchcock in my just kind of creative writing exercises on my own is the idea that you always want to give the audience more information than the characters. So the audience knows that there's bomb under the chair, but the characters don't know about it. Or one character knows about it and they need to get the information out. Or if you think about the... the man who knew too much, the, the famous scene in the concert hall, where you know that once this once this this one note of this song hits, then the bullet's gonna go off and it's gonna kill the person, and this one person knows, and they have to try to warn them before it all happens. And he, he's just a genius in setups in and plot structure, but he also knows how to shoot the hell out of a movie visually. So he knows storytelling, he knows visuals, he knows suspense. Uh, so yeah, I think no list like this would be complete without putting Alfred Hitchcock on there. So uh, Alex, what you got? Alex, all right, so last one here. Andrew Dominic. He directed Killing Them Softly and Chopper, which I haven't seen. But he also directed my absolute favorite movie, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Great movie. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. I there is for me everything about that movie is perfect. It's absolutely gorgeous. You know, it's shot by Roger Deakins, so the acting's fantastic. I mean, Brad Pitt is, of course, great. Casey Affleck is, he's so good. He's so off-putting. 
you never really know exactly what he's thinking or exactly what he's getting at. And it just keeps you kind of guessing his kind of true intentions throughout the film. And it's got an incredible backup cat or like, um, you know, it's got a, the rest of the cast is fantastic as well. I mean, we got Sam Rockwell, Sam, uh, Sam Shepard. Very, very good Sam Shepard performance. I'm thinking back on that. It's, it's, yeah, he does, he has something about like how he just directs his actors where he doesn't want them to overplay it, but he wants them to bring their all to that scene. And it just, it's something about the chemistry of how he just makes them all work in the same setting. And it just, it, it blows your mind. Like, what the heck just happened here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like all all the characters are absolutely fantastic. It the story is it gives it of course it gives it away in the title, but it's just the continual lead up to that moment. And that's a hell of a moment. But I love that the assassination of James is such a slow burn. And it kind of and that that's also the case for killing them softly. That's, I think, what I love about his movies. And again, I haven't seen Chopper, so I can't say if that's the same thing. But with Killing Them Softly, another, it's a kind of gangster crime drama. But it, again, with the slow burn, with the incredible characters that they have. And, and again, fantastic actors as well. I mean, Brad Pitt's back. We got Ray Liotta. Ben Mendelsohn is fantastic. We've got some of the same faces, but yeah, I I think that's one of his like one of the things I love about his you know his movies is just the slow burn, the slow lead up until it finally hits, and then it really does. It's like a fuse for a powder keg, and when it finally explodes, it's it's it goes, it just causes a lot of devastation. Yeah, and it doesn't. And the thing is, is it, is it also doesn't lead up into like a huge massive action sequence or huge explosions and whatnot it doesn't lead up to to that kind of thing it just leads up to a bang and then it's done and that's over and then you get to see the aftermath but um yeah that that's what i love about his movies they're just fantastic like that yeah like i said it really subverts ideas of like this whole kind of like um well, kind of like Scorsese and even like Tarantino, how they really go all out with the violence. They just like really just like to like show a lot of it on screen. This guy kind of like withholds a lot of it and just really puts a lot more weight on just one simple action. Yeah. And what's kind of funny that you mentioned that is um, a while back, I actually got the chance to see the assassination of Jesse James um, in theaters. It was a revival screening. But was what was really cool, too, is um, Andrew Dominic and Roger Deakins were both there and they got to do a Q&A after. So I got to ask Andrew Dominic a question. And I asked him in the movie, we see a lot of the main characters and it's all caught on screen. The movie ends on a freeze frame of Casey Affleck of, you know, Robert Ford just before he's shot. So I always ask, so I asked, why do we end on the freeze frame? Why don't we get a, why don't we see him die? And it was just a simple, simple answer in that, well, he's the hero of the movie. We don't want to see him die. But yeah, uh, that's why I love the Andromic films. Yeah, the only one that I've seen is uh, Assassination of Jesse James. But And it's been a while since I've seen that one too, but I remember absolutely loving it as well. Yeah. So good choice, I, I good think, pick. I think you would really like Killing Them Softly as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's a really good one. You would probably like it. 
All right, Nate, who's your last one? I, I think you guys pretty much know. I mean, we did a spot. <laughs> we did like our first spotlight on this one. Um, and we've done a video on one of his movies. Yes, we have. Actually, that is my favorite movie of his, surprisingly. Um, so just to cut to the chase, it's Orson Welles. I guess the big reason why I like this guy is obviously, yeah, he has a background in theater and radio, but I like how he came into Hollywood at a time when Hollywood was still trying out new things and really just changed a lot of just like presenting a lot of new techniques to the, the industry that had never been done or tempered with before. I mean, everyone keeps referencing Citizen Kane, but actually I like his later stuff or his more underrated work, like The Lady from Shanghai. His version of Macbeth, I think, is actually a fantastic adaptation of Shakespeare to the screen. There's something about how uh, Wells, throughout all of his career, he always knew exactly what kind of films he loved to make. He knows like how he wants to shoot them. And I think the best stuff always shines the greatest when he is dealing with limited funding or limited resources, because then he got really creative. Um, and I referenced The Trial. What I like about it is that there's a lot of stuff that he did for that film just to limit the production costs and how he would shoot something. Like he should, he shoots a lot of it at night in the rafters and a lot of shadows and dark hallways, but there's something just intimidating and even just threatening about that. And even like, you know, Joe, you've seen uh, The Other Side of the Wind where he's doing something really interesting with that film. He's kind of shooting off script and there's really no actual like solid story going on, but a lot of what you're kind of capturing is almost kind of like what, in a way, reality TV would kind of like start doing like maybe 20, 30 years from then. And I don't know, he's kind of a very innovative guy who he didn't grow up knowing a lot of film, but when he kind of came onto the scene, he just did a lot of great stuff with it. And I think a lot of people always reference his films, always look back on him, maybe not so fondly. And maybe like I said, Joe, I don't know if you're too much of a fan of Citizen Kane. I know everyone raves about it, but yeah, I admit that he kind of was a pioneer in what he did. Oh yeah, I, I would I would absolutely say he's a, a a pioneer. In fact, that's probably that's probably what I what I respect him for more than anything. I'm not the biggest fan of Orson Welles in general, but I I I do respect what he did, and I respect respect a lot of his films. I'm not likely to revisit a whole lot of them, but I I get why uh, a lot of people love him so much in the film community, especially. Oh, yeah. All right, Joe, now it's time to you. All righty. So my last one will be no surprise to many of uh, you guys here on this podcast. Uh, I'm going to be saying Sam Raimi. Oh, yeah. Yep. Sam Raimi. Yep. First of all, I want to address something about Sam Raimi that I've, 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 I've kind of seen in the public perception of him recently. I, I think it should be not, not allowed. I think it should be punishable to use the, use the word corny and Sam Raimi in the same context as a negative. <laughs> okay. I mean, okay. Can you just define that a little bit more? I, th I, th I think people are misunderstanding Sam Raimi as a filmmaker today in in uh, uh, light of his work on the Spider-Man films, and it's affected everything that he's made uh, since. I, I I saw someone on Twitter even just just, just today you know, rub me the wrong way. Um, they talked about how uh, in Quick Quick in the Dead, there's that one shot where the the guy got the hole blown through his head. Mm -hmm. And someone said, oh, that was a really cool moment. Unfortunately, it was ruined by the corny shot where the guy gets shot and then does a cartwheel backwards 
I'm like, you do not understand Sam Raimi. That's, that's the charm of Sam Raimi. He's one of the most fun-loving, free-willing guys out there. He is doing this because he loves it, and he loves having fun. If you are laughing at a Sam Raimi movie, you are not doing it wrong. He's laughing along with you. He's making it to be funny. Yeah. I mean, I think what thing I kind of, and this is a, an appreciation I got with him after, you know, watching a lot of films with you, Joe, Evil Dead 2, I think Oz the Great and Powerful, a lot of the Spider-Man movies as well, is that his intention of shooting something is for you to have fun. If you're not having fun, then he's not doing his job well. Like, yeah. like I know I know people mix ideas about a lot of his movies. Uh, I watched Oz the Great and Powerful recently. I enjoy Oz the Great and Powerful, but I, I get why, why a lot of people don't like that movie. But I like the little Sam Raimi touches in that movie. Uh, even even stuff like in Spider-Man 3, you know, the, the emo Spider-Man dance. Yes. That's my favorite part about Dude. the movie. It, it, it's, it's supposed to be goofy. That, that, that's the whole point is that is that Peter Parker doesn't know how to be cool evil. He's dorky evil. <laughs> it's supposed to be funny. Oh, my gosh. And the fact he's wearing like the black suit. And I guess like everyone knows, like Sam Raimi's known for wearing a suit on set as well sometimes he, he is yes and so i keep thinking to myself that must, it must have been interesting to watch like toby mcguire watching sam Raimi block out that dance sequence <laughs> yeah. if i i wouldn't be surprised if sam Raimi did, did the sequel did the sequence for him just to show him yeah oh, oh absolutely yeah the director putting it like here i'll show you how it's done <laughs> yeah i i i i get a little disconcerted because i feel like there's this there's this perception that you can't blend genres. You can't. You, you can't just go goofy and have a little bit of fun. Sometimes, uh, even even looking at his most recently uh, on that that uh, streaming service, Quibi, he, yeah. he directed something for that. It was just three episodes of a horror anthology, and I saw someone post it on Twitter, and there was very mixed reactions to it because the whole idea was that uh, the, the the anthology series was taking kind of folk tales from different states and turning it into fun little horror shorts. But his his was about a a woman uh, who was married to a lumberjack. She gets her arm <laughs> trapped under a tree, and the lumberjack cuts off her arm to free her from the tree. <laughs> and he makes her a golden arm. And the whole thing is that she loves this golden arm so much, and she's so vain, and she just wants to wear it all the time. But then the doctor tells her that the gold in the arm is poisoning her. But she's like, I don't care if I'm going to die. I'm going to die with this gold in the arm. <laughs> <laughs> that is the funniest thing. I, I, I saw a mix of people saying like, yes, this is why I love Sam Raimi. Because he just goes for this this really funny, goofy stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's spooky and funny all, all rolled into one. A heightened energy to it that you can't find anywhere else. But then, but then you see like half the comments were like, oh my gosh, he's doing Doctor Strange too. Doctor Strange is doomed. This guy is a terrible director. What's he doing? <laughs> I'll say this about the guy. Anyone who can be good friends or good pal friends with the Coen brothers is okay in my book. You know, this, this guy is actually really close friends with uh, Ethan and Joel Coen. And he's actually done projects with them. Or he's even like, I don't know, have you seen his uh, kind of his own Coen Brother-esque film, uh, Simple Plan. I, I have. It's been a while since I've seen that one, uh, but I have seen it. I, I most recently watched The Hudsucker Proxy, which he co-wrote with them. Yes, and you can actually find the moments that he must have penned. Like, Well, he, he also directed, I, I know, at least two sequences in that movie. I think I read that he directed the scene where Mr. Hudsucker jumps out the window at the beginning of the movie, and he directed the whole hula hoop montage as well. Uh, yep. I, I can see that now because it, it definitely has this touch to it. 
So Sam Raimi is is God's gift to, to filmmaking. He's the most <laughs> joyful guy out there. Everyone, everyone who talks about working with him, just talk about how, how nice and unassuming he is. He's a bright spark in, in, in Hollywood right now, in a Hollywood that's being drudged down with all these controversies and scumbags. It's like Sam Raimi's is it's just, it's just this, this little guy that's still just like a kid who wants to make what he enjoys making. So... Um, I will I will be there absolutely opening day, no matter what he makes, no matter what I thought of his last movie, I will see anything Sam Raimi puts out. Anyway, that's my that's my two cents. Um, before we 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 wrap up, uh, is there is there any other honorable mentions anybody wanted to throw out there? Oh, man, Alex, do you want to mention any honorable mentions? I've got a couple that I wanted to throw in. First off would be Hayao Miyazaki. Of course, I couldn't leave anime out of this uh this list here i mean he played a, a major role in bringing anime to the western audience um and you know aside from that his movies are absolutely fantastic um but then also my man don Hertzfeld, such a beautiful day is one of my favorite movies it's an absolutely incredible movie and an incredible experience to to really go through as well as um his other short film uh world of tomorrow it's just absolutely fantastic and then you know he's all these weird other cartoons that he's done too um if i'm going to throw in one extra one in here i'm going to throw well two i'm going to mention first off joe dante who i am finding more and more i love quite a few of his movies and si similar to a sam raimi way he's just he's, he's a guy who loves movies and he loves putting out movies he's a filmmaker for filmmakers but uh kind of on more of a, a pulpy fun level and then I also throw in uh, Lam Nai Choi, who I've been talking about on the, the podcast I know recently. Yep. Uh, he is a cult filmmaker that has yet to be discovered by the wider cult community. His movies are still, unfortunately, very difficult to find. But if you can, I highly recommend seeking out especially The Cat, uh, The Seventh Curse, which you can watch on Amazon. Of course, Ricky O, and I would recommend... <laughs> Brothers from the Walled City is another one, which is kind of a crazy melodrama. Okay, and I'll be really brief. Um, I think some that didn't make it into the top five, but I really do like uh, Terrence Malick is one of a very few I love. He's not a director that everyone can sit through, but I like how there's just some of his stuff that's just so gorgeous to watch, and he's just doing a lot of interesting stuff. Um, David Lynch, I'm also a big fan of. A lot of more of his like weirder, twisty, surreal movies I do have a interesting spot for. But you know, Mulholland Drive I think is one of my favorite of his. Coen Brothers, always really good. Uh I think they are just great at what they do. And then last but not least, I would say Baz Luhrmann. I know I really am kind of upset that he didn't make the top five, but uh he's a director I'll go on to just for good fun like he's wacky he's zany he just makes it a lavish you know fest to watch his movies and i don't know I, good stuff strictly ballroom fantastic movie that too moulin rouge i i actually do like his romeo plus juliet as weird as that movie is it's a hell of a lot of fun and then also the great gatsby i know everyone's kind of split on that movie but i think he did some good stuff with it Awesome. Well, that will do it for this episode of the Film Illiterates podcast. You can find us at filmilliterates.com, youtube.com slash filmilliterates for uh, podcast episodes like this, and also our video reviews, which you can find up there, including some movies that we have talked about today. 
Uh, Nate, where can people find you? Uh, well, you can find me here at Film Alerts. I do the podcasts and videos with these guys. I also am on uh, Instagram at Nathan underscore Stone underscore Films. And I'm also on Letterboxd as Ivan Claysburg. Alex? Well, one of the other videos we talked about, or one of the movies that we talked about that we also have a video on, uh, Only God Forgives. So yes. check that out. Me and Joe did a great video for that. Mm-hmm. We got to um, get more hits on that. That was, that was a oh, fun video to shoot, too. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> Outside of that, um, you can also find me on Twitter at, at Alex D. Patton. And then I'm on Rate Your Music if you want to check out what I'm listening to, My Anime List if you want to see what series I'm keeping up with, and Letterboxd, all, all under half scrim. And you can find me at uh, on Twitter at Film Illiterates and on Letterboxd as well at uh, user film underscore illiterate. That'll do it for us today on the Film Illiterates podcast. Keep watching movies and keep it easy.